I want everybody to stand up. I'm going to count to three, and we're going to shout Jesus three times at the top of our voice. Amen? Get our blood pumping. Glory to God. One, two, three. Jesus! 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 Hallelujah. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, praise God. Today, I am going to continue in this current series that we're in uh, where we're talking about reconciliation. So we're in the weeks that are leading up to Easter. And this is a powerful time for us to focus in on the message of the cross. The Apostle Paul, I mentioned last week, brilliant man, but he told the Corinthian church, he said, when I was in your midst, I resolved to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ in him crucified. Now there's a very simple message of the cross, but there's also great depth uh, and mystery in the message of the cross. And we want to explore uh, these truths and the impact that they have on our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14, I'm going to read, and this is kind of our base passage for this series on reconciliation and what Jesus did through the cross. It says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word, breathed by the Holy Spirit, is already anointed. God, help us get on your wavelength. We ask you to open our ears to hear your word. Open our hearts, Lord, to receive your truth, that none of us would leave the same, but God, we would be transformed. And God, you would take this humble clay that we are and you would turn us into something great and powerful. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. And everybody said, today, now last week I talked about the power of forgiveness. And what does Paul mean when he says, not counting men's sins against them? This morning, I want to talk about this other aspect that this 
passage is so famous for. It's the aspect of the new creation. The new creation. In verses 14 and 15, just to read them over again quickly, it says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. What is he, what is he talking about there? And he goes on and says, he, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then the very famous verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, there's a famous uh, verse, very often quoted, Often, it's one of those verses that people quote and they don't even realize where it is. It's Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. And it says this, My people perish for a lack of knowledge. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. Now that verse is an extremely powerful verse. And in my estimation, the way I've heard different people quote it and apply it, it's, it's a very misapplied verse, quite frankly, not maliciously so, but I think a lot of people misapply that verse, kind of like they misapply the verse where Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, right? Uh, people say, you know, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You're sitting there at your uh, computer terminal and you've forgotten a password, And you're like, I wish I could remember this crazy password. And then somebody comes along and, you know, shows you or you figure out and then you recover the password and it's like, I just found out the truth about my password and it has set me free. Now that's misapplying that. There's some measure of natural truth to it, but that's misapplying. Jesus wasn't talking about natural truth. He wasn't, uh, you know, boy, if I could just know the truth about what the winning lottery numbers are this week, I could be financially free. He's, he's, not, he's not talking about natural truth. He's talking about the truth that is in him. And in the same way, uh, we perish for lack of knowledge, but it's not uh, we perish for lack of knowledge about, uh, you know, what is the right uh, combination to the lock that we need to open up to, to, to recover uh, some important uh, possession of ours. The knowledge that we perish for lack of is the knowledge of God. It's knowing God. And it, it is my conviction that the truth, the real truth in the scriptures about the new creation that we are in Christ that is ours, that God tells us that we, we have and that we possess and that has been delivered into our hands through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that our ignorance of that great truth leads us into waters in which we often perish. We're living below our privileges because we don't understand this grace and this truth of the new birth. It's, it's central to the gospel. It is central to the Christian faith to understand the nature of the new birth. But it, I want to tell you the truth. I have not heard a whole lot of sermons that really talk about the new birth, that really talk about the nature of it. I've heard evangelistic sermons that tell us about the new birth, but I haven't I haven't really heard a whole lot of messages that really plumb the depths and talk about the nature 
of who we are in Christ, the new uh, nature that he's been uh, given to us, that he's, that he's delivered into our hands. But beginning in John 3.3 3, and going through the rest of the New Testament, practically every writer talks about it. In John 3.3, 3, we have that famous story where Jesus had begun his ministry and it was night. And this prominent man from among the Pharisees, Nicodemus, under cover of darkness, incognito, comes to Jesus and begins to talk with him. And Jesus says, what? You must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, a man brilliant in the scriptures, versed in the law, didn't have a clue as to what Jesus was talking about. And sometimes I think we still don't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. And, and really practically every New Testament writer after that. But the, the story of the new creation that the Apostle Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is the bedrock of who we are in Jesus Christ and has been foretold. If you look back in Jeremiah chapter uh, 31, verses 33 through 34, it says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and his each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Jeremiah foretells a new covenant in which the law will be written on their hearts. These are a people that are steeped in the law. They've got the law written down. They're conversing in the law. Now, they're in exile, and they're wondering what happened, and so they become more devoted to the law than ever before. And in the midst of this national crisis that they're going through, Jeremiah gives a promise. And he says, the day is going to come when the law is written on their hearts. It's not just written on a piece of paper for them to read or even memorize. It's going to be written on their hearts just as powerfully Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 says this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. This is Old Testament prophecy, where a prophet is foretelling a time when God will step in miraculously and he uses the illustration. He says, it's like you've got a heart of stone. There's nothing in, inside of you that's inclined to obey me. The only thing that you have is a written law written down on paper that is telling you right and wrong, but there's nothing inside of you that's empowering you to live according to that law, but I'm going to change all that. I'm going to take out that heart of stone, and I'm going to put in you a heart of flesh, and I'm going to put my spirit within you, 
And it's going to put you in a position where you're actually going to be inclined, not from the outside, not a condemning law from the outside, but an inward change of nature, a motivation change from the inside that's an actual transformation that is going to empower you to live right. Now the question is this, how does this actually work? It sounds great, but we have to come to grips. And every human being has to come to grips with the guilt factor, has to come to grips with the shame factor, has to come to grips with the fact that they're not living and they're not acting according to how they want to live and how they want to act. And I wish that I could say that all you have to do is say this simple sinner's prayer and all that's going to go away, but I think we all know better, don't we? So we've got to grapple with how this truth is expressed in the New Testament. For my money, I don't, I don't think there's a more succinct chapter. This is mentioned all throughout the scriptures, but there's no more succinct chapter that gets right to the point of it then Romans chapter 6. So I want you to turn there to Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to read, beginning in verse 3, and I'm going to read uh, about, about nine verses here, because this goes right to the heart of the issue. This is the Apostle Paul again writing. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to I'm going to speak to this again in terms of the cross because Paul is talking about the cross. I remember when I was in college I had a Bible study leader pose this question because we were uh, talking about walking with the Lord and we we're talking about leading other people to Jesus and he said you're going to have to deal with this difficult question. Sooner or later, in one form or another, people are going to ask you, what does the death of a Jewish carpenter on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago have to do with me? How does that change my situation at all? I'm going to tell you, there are born-again, blood-bought, Pentecostal, God-loving Christians that can't answer that question. The best they can come up with, I'm not, I'm not attacking anybody, I'm just analyzing, I'm just diagnosing an issue here so that we can be free and so that we can give a message of freedom to other people. Most of the time, the best that people can come up with is Jesus is a great example. No greater love has any man than this than he laid down his life for his friends. Absolutely, that's true. 
That is true. Jesus was an example. The question is this. If Jesus lays down his life and nobody takes it from him and he says that very thing, why does he lay down his life? Why does he do it? My goodness, he's walking around, he's kicking the devil out of every person that he sees, he's healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead, multiplying fish and loaves. Why doesn't he keep doing that good? Why did he die so young, man? He had another, he had another good full lifetime of what he had done. He, he had ministered three years all wet. Why didn't he minister for another 30? Why didn't he just keep going and keep doing all that good stuff? How is it an example for him to die? Why, why doesn't he keep setting an example? Why doesn't he teach us more? These are questions people don't, oh, I, I, I don't know. This is the mystery of the cross. The mystery of the cross. How does the cross impact us? Paul answers that question here. When we are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, when we give our hearts to Christ and we are baptized, and he's talking about the baptism in the Spirit, right? He's talking about us being transformed, us drinking in the Holy Spirit. When we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. We're baptized into the effect of his death. And when he rose from the dead, we rise from the dead with him. This is how the death of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago impacts you. Because somehow when we put our faith in him, when we say, This man did this, but he wasn't any ordinary man. He was the son of God. And I believe that he was the son of God. I believe he died for my sins, and I believe he rose from the dead. When you put your faith in him, his death becomes your death. And his life becomes your life. You're like, well, um, (laughs) spare me the death. Just give me the life. No, this is... This is a death that you want to die. The Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why do you want to be crucified with Christ? Because the old man is no good. Everybody's got a sinful nature. If you're, listen to me. Listen, this is good preaching, and it not only applies to you, it applies to anybody who you can witness to. If your flesh, if this body dies before the old nature dies inside of you, you die eternally. I'm going to say that again. If If your inner old man, your sinful old man inside of you, remains in place when this mortal flesh dies, your death is permanent. So what God wants to do is he wants to put to death the old man first and bring about the life of a new man inside of you. And when that happens, then it doesn't matter when this body dies because then you live forever. 
That's why Paul says we are crucified with Christ. That when, we, when we're baptized, we're baptized into his death. We're buried in death with him. And then when we come up out of the water, then the resurrection is ours forever. That death, by, by Je- when Jesus was crucified, when we put our faith in him, our sin nature is nailed to that cross, is rendered powerless. And the way is paved for us to have a new nature inside of us. Now, I talked about forgiveness last week. And most Christians understand, they understand, why did Jesus die? He died to pay for my sins. He died to pay for my sins. He died for me to receive forgiveness. That's true. But that's not the whole truth. And and because it's not the whole truth, and many Christians just, just stop short there, they live their life on a continual roller coaster. Their life is like a, is like a whiteboard in a, in a classroom. It's getting dirtied, it's getting wiped. It's getting dirtied, it's getting wiped. It's getting dirtied, it's getting wiped. They don't have any power at all. They, they know they have access to forgiveness, but they don't know that they have the power to overcome sin itself in the first place. Now, what happens to a Christian who lives that way? What happens? Complacency comes in. Discouragement comes in. They don't feel any power. They feel like a feather in a whirlwind. They feel like a, like a leaf in the, in the autumn caught by one of these east winds that's coming down the gorge. They just don't have any power. They don't have any strength. They don't have any, any willpower to exert over sin. Sin is something that just happens to them. It's, it's like these... It's like these movies that you see out of Hollywood where people are like, you know, you got, you got a, a man confronting uh, his, his wife or vice versa, and one spouse says to the other spouse, what are you doing? You're running around. I've seen you in public with this other person. It's like, I, uh, well, I didn't mean for this to happen. I didn't, I didn't plan this. I just... I just, I just fell in love with them. I just, I don't, I don't know, like, like, like love is some sort of a mud puddle in the street. I was just walking along and I just, I just tripped. I just fell. I just, I, I didn't mean for it to happen. God does not intend for us to be a feather in the whirlwind. He's got better for you. He's got better for you. He's got the nature of Christ to give to you. We're talking about a forgiveness. Yes, it's forgiveness. But it's forgiveness that goes so deep, it actually affects your nature. It actually changes who you are. Here's, here's an illustration of this. Illustrations all throughout Scripture. An agricultural illustration. You got a thorn bush. There's been a battle between thorns and fruit from the Garden of Eden. So you got a thorn bush going on here. What are you going to do? It's got prickers all over it. Thorns. Well, we got to resolve this situation. Solution number one. This is an increasing answer by our society today. Solution number one is to say thorns are okay. (laughs) We like thorns. How dare you say those thorns are sharp? You're oppressing those thorns by saying they're sharp. 
you, you, you're victimizing the thorns. Um, you shouldn't talk about thorns on your Twitter feed. Oh, he said something about thorns, and now it's all taken down. You know, there's, don't, you're being prejudiced against thorns. So that's number one, say thorns are okay. Well, let's, okay, thorns are obviously not okay. So next, um, go get some of those pruning shears and clip off the thorns. Go, boy, there's a lot of those prickers, you know. How do you clip, 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 clip? You're trying to reach in there and you're cutting, oh, I didn't get that one. And you're trying to cut off all the, all the tips of all the thorns. That's another option. That's not really working. You get done and all you got is a mangled thorn bush. It's still a thorn bush, right? And then you, you next day, oh, man, those are tenacious little buggers. They just, they just keep putting out more thorns, right? They grow back awful quick. So that's not going to work. I know what we can do. We can go down to Safeway and buy a bunch of grapes. And we can hang the grapes on the thorn bush, right, one by one, like a little, uh, you know, Easter is coming and you got people who they hang eggs on their trees in their yards. Anybody see that? So you, you're going to do that with the grapes, you know, like one grape at a time you're hanging. you got this, like, little perverse Christmas tree. You know, in your yard. These poor grapes are dripping juice, you know. After a while, you get tired, and you just take the grapes, and you just stick them on the thorns, you know. It's just, you know, they got this crazy thing going on. Well, that's not really going to work. Some people try to resolve it this way. They take the thorn bush, and they just cut it down. They just cut it right level with the ground. There's this, this woody stump sticking out. Has anybody ever noticed how quickly... Thorn bushes come back. They are tenacious. It doesn't matter. You cut that thing right at the base. It, it, you still got a thorn bush in your garden. I mean, you can, you can try to dress it up all you want. You can be in denial about it. But you know, after you've done it, you go in and you're eating your grilled cheese sandwich for lunch or whatever. You still know that you got a thorn bush out there. How do we resolve this? Here's God's answer. A miracle. That's God's answer. He's going to transform that thing from the root. He's going to kill it down to the very tippy tip of its roots. He's going to kill that thing dead. Everybody knows that a thorn bush, the only way to get rid of it is to kill it. So he's going to kill that thing dead to the very tip of its roots. And once it's dead, he's going to transform it, and he's going to make it a fruit tree. He's going to make it a gentle, soft, thornless, fruit-bearing tree. That is what the new birth is about. You've got to understand the death. This is not... So, when, 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 when Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, one died for all and therefore all died, we get these goofy ideas from Eastern religion that's gotten into our head, and it, it's, it's some sort of, you know, some, some, some sort of extreme form of self-denial and, 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 and this, this sort of uh, reaching of some sort of weird nirvana. That's not at all what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about crucifixion. That's what he's talking about. You ever wonder why Jesus 
okay, all right, Jesus laying down his life, but why did he have to die so ugly? Why did it have to be that bad? He had to die that ugly because our sin nature was that ugly. That's why. And he had to die completely, really die. You ever, you ever notice, I'm jumping ahead, but this is Easter season, where the lance goes into Jesus' side. Remember that? Gospel of John. They're coming along. they got to get the bodies off the cross. they got to hasten their death. So they're breaking the legs of the thieves because when you're on, the, when you're on a cross, how you breathe is by pushing up off the nails that are through your heels so that you can get a breath because your whole thorax is imploding on itself through crucifixion. So that's how you, that's how you breathe. And, of course, the, the drive to draw breath is so strong that the people would endure the pain of pushing off those nails just to get a breath. But if your legs are broken, you can't breathe anymore because you can't push. So they break the, the legs of the other criminals. They come to Jesus, and he's already dead. But to make extra sure, they lance him. They lance him. And it says blood and water flows out. Read it. Read it in the Gospel of John. John goes on and on. He says, I've test of it testified of it I saw it it's true and you can count on my testimony when I was younger I read that I was like what's the big deal okay we get it the point is to understand that Jesus was really dead say that's a hard word yeah but it's a word of hope because Jesus really dying means our sin nature was really defeated Our sin nature really was crucified, really was defeated, really was put to death. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it means not only is the thorn bush dead to the bottom of its lowest root, but that means also a new life can come out, a fruit-bearing life, a blessed life, a good life. Now you say, Pastor, how do we apply this? What, What... how does this apply to us? How I still feel thorns. Anybody still deal with a thorn or two or ten? You're like, this is great. This reads great. This preaches great. But how does it actually? How does it actually apply? Let me read uh, in the same chapter, Romans six, from verse twelve. It says. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present the members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul is saying that we have something now that's a choice. Before, we didn't have a choice. We were slaves to sin. We were, we were bound by the sin nature. We could hate it, we could struggle against it, but we didn't have any more chance against it than a slave who's bound hand and foot. But now he's saying, no, it's up to you. It's your choice. You've been set free. But you got to present yourself. This is what we call appropriation. Appropriation. Appropriation means it's yours, but you have to take a hold of it. You know what I read, uh, I read the other day? That the IRS, everybody's favorite government agency right now, the IRS is saying 
there's $1.4 billion in unclaimed returns. $1.4 billion. I'd settle for a little fraction of that one. Now, they're saying, hey, this is about to expire, so, so claim it. Who does the money belong to? Even the government is saying it belongs to the taxpayer. Even the government is saying, hey, this doesn't belong to us. It belongs to you, the citizen. But if those people don't cash it in, they'll never get the benefit of it. It's just as if it was never given to them. Is everybody tracking with me on that? You have to appropriate it. And what, what Paul is saying here is you have to appropriate the freedom that has been purchased for you. You must count yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you have a shallow understanding of the cross, you're going to understand Jesus paid for me to be forgiven, but you're not going to understand that Jesus paid to transform your very nature so you could walk free. That's what you won't understand, and you'll be walking way below your privileges. God wants you to be free. He's saying, don't do it. Don't present yourself this way. Don't, don't give yourself over to sin. Don't let it, don't let sin abide in your, in your mortal flesh. Before, the appetites of your flesh were in the driver's seat. They could run the show because you were, you were bound by a sin nature. But now that God has planted the nature of Christ in you, your Christ-like nature can take the reins and can drive the situation. But you've got to grow up into it. You've got to step into it. He goes on, verse 17 of the same chapter. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. That's a very important verse. That's a very important verse there. I'll come back to it. It says, For just as you once presented your members uh, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. Here's the thing. Here's, this is so important to understand that, that phrase, natural limitations. You have been born again. If you have bowed the knee to Jesus, if you said, Jesus, I want to serve you. I, I don't want to be my own master anymore. I, I yield to you. I ask you to be my Lord. I ask you to come into my life and save me. That's, an, that's a prayer he never denies. He never says no to that prayer. When he comes in and he transforms you, it is such a radical transformation I don't care what the circumstances were of your conversion. The Bible says the angels danced. That it was a momentous occasion in heaven. A 
Ephesians chapter 2 says, when you were dead in sin, God in his mercy raised you up and seated you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you are in Christ, in the spiritual realm, you're counted as seated in the heavenly places right now. I'm telling you, we're living below our privileges. You have a miraculous status before the throne of heaven. God listens to your prayers because of the way you've been adopted into the family of God through this new nature. So you're like, well, I don't feel very heavenly right now. I don't, I ate something for breakfast that doesn't quite agree with me. I didn't sleep last night and my bunion is acting up or whatever. Like, I don't feel particularly seated in the heavenly places right now. Those are the natural limitations that Paul is talking about. We're still in the natural. We don't have our glorified bodies yet. And so he's saying, given that you don't have your glorified body yet, you're going to have to have a spiritual strategy to exert the privilege and the power of the new nature that's been birthed in you. This is what Jesus calls abiding in the vine. Right? He says, you got to abide in me. If you don't abide in me, you're not going to bear any fruit. You're going to be cut off. It's going to be just as if you're a thorn bush that's cut off and thrown away. You've got to abide in the Lord. Abiding in the Lord is how you appropriate. Developing a prayer life. Developing a, a, a focus on the Lord. Saturating yourselves in the word of God. Praying, seeking the things of God. These are the things that help you step into, listen to me, step into who you already are. The prayer that you pray, the faithfulness to the things of God, the consistency in the house of God, these things, fellowshipping with other Christians, watching your spiritual diet, right? We walk in the flesh, we're like, well, I, I just don't get it. I, I pray over my meals. I go to church once a week. The rest of my time I spend watching reruns of Desperate Housewives. Never miss my soap operas. Read my Cosmopolitan magazine. I can't figure out why I'm walking in the flesh. Right? This stuff isn't mysterious. You have rights. You have privileges bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Walk in the Spirit, and the Spirit walks with you. The Apostle Paul, he tells us, he says, since we walk by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit, right? And the Spirit of God is ahead of you. He's transformed you and given you a status and a position before the throne of God that it's going to take an eternity to appreciate. So let's hurl ourselves into the things of God. Let's take authority over the things of, of, of the devil that would be afflicting us so we can walk in the newness of life that he has for us. I want to ask the brothers that help with the Lord's Supper to come. And normally we have... Uh, a time of music right now. Um, Elijah is with the kids. But I want you to 
prepare your hearts. I want you to prepare your hearts before the Lord. Paul says we should examine our hearts. The scriptures say we should examine our hearts. God wants us to draw near to him in confidence in the faith. He loves you so much that the very nature that alienated you from him to destroy that that was destroying us, he sent his son to the cross so that it could be fully laid down and we could be set free. Praise be to God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just begin to thank him. Thank, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Jesus. Father, you're good. Hallelujah. 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 Consider the body and the blood of the Lord. Consider the price that was paid. And today, consider the effect of that sacrifice. Jesus is the great liberator. Jesus, 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 Jesus. The Savior. The great good shepherd of the sheep who laid down his life that we might live. Set us free from all sin and all wickedness to purify for himself a people eager to do what is just and good and right. Changed from the heart. Father, in Jesus' name, complete the good work that you've begun in us. Take out of us, Father, the heart of stone. God, the spirit of indifference. Religiosity, apathy, complacency. God, a willingness to settle for the status quo. Oh, hallelujah. Lord, as a body, this morning we count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the new nature that you have given to us. God, we ask you to forgive us for our ignorance. God, we ask you to forgive us, Lord, for driving this sports car of a spiritual life that you've given us as if it's a tricycle. Saints, I want to say this to you.
somebody, a Christian, who doesn't understand what being crucified with Christ means, who doesn't understand that Jesus paid with his blood, his breath, his body, to put your self-destructive sin nature to death and that he rose from the dead so that you might experience a resurrected spirit now. You don't need to wait. You get it now. Such a person always finds repentance a bitter pill. Always finds it a grind. Always avoids it. Always shies away. Always always puts repentance off. Always gets into a justification game. Always demurs. Always tries to, 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 to say what they did isn't, isn't all that bad. Or, and, 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 and they suffer greatly. Many, many days. Separate from the Lord who longs to have them back in fellowship. If you only understand that Jesus bled and died for the forgiveness of sins, but you don't understand the new creation that you are in Christ Jesus. Repentance will always be something you avoid. But if you understand that Jesus gave you a new man on the inside, a new being, a new nature that you can run in and enjoy, then repentance will be sweet like the honeycomb. It will be so sweet to you, you'll draw near in gentle brokenness of spirit. Even tears of repentance will be sweet to you. And all the stony heart that you've had that has disappointed you, you've been disappointed by your own stony heart, God will melt that heart and he will give you a heart of flesh. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread gave thanks and he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this whenever you do it in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it. He gave it to them. He said, take this, all of you, and drink it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you do it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Now just worship the Lord. Worship him. Draw near to him. Draw near to the Lord in blessing. Hallelujah, Father. We bless you. We thank you, Lord God. God, thank you because of the new birth. I look out on my brothers and sisters. I look out on faces that I'm going to behold forever. Because we're going to be together in heaven forever. Because eternal life has already begun in us. It's already begun in us. Rejoice, people of God. Rejoice. Rejoice, the resurrection is already upon you. 
Glory be to God. Glory be to God. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for his goodness. Hallelujah for his joy. Hallelujah. 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 Praise be to God. I want you to stand to your feet right now. Would you raise your hands for a blessing as I just dismiss you in the name of the Lord? May the Lord bless and keep you. Make the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. My prayer for you today is that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon you, to carry you, to strengthen you in the knowledge of God, that you would know the truth and that the truth would set you free. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of his blood and his resurrection, I break chains of sin off of your life. I break chains of addiction and compulsive behavior off of your life. I break a spirit of condemnation off of your life that is keeping you from the place of prayer, keeping you from declaring the word of the Lord, and keeping you from the joy and the abundant life that God has for you. Be free in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord. Love somebody near to you. There's nothing like drawing close to Jesus. Hallelujah.